before I had that forum, I was thinking in totally different directions about pay packages and about uh, workloads and 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 it, it, you know the solution seemed to come from a totally different direction. So. Hello, hello. This is my EO Education Podcast. And my guest today is Avi Steinman. Hello, Avi. Hey, how you doing, Chris? Great. This is actually quite an international podcast. Most of our listeners are United States, but you are in Israel and I'm in Tenerife. So if we get little interruptions, please forgive us. Okay, Avi. We are meeting today to inspire and also educate our listeners on different various educational topics. And your company, what your company is doing, Academic Language Experts, is quite exceptional. That's why I wanted to talk to you. So please introduce yourselves and tell us more about it. Wow. All right. So uh, that's a tall task to try and inspire people, but uh, I'll do my best to share you know, some of the things that I've learned. Um, yes, so as you mentioned, um, I am the founder and CEO of Academic Language Experts. Um, and Academic Language Experts is a company in the higher education space that's dedicated to helping researchers with publishing their research um, and also getting funding for their research. So anything that has to do with uh, research writing, publication. So, you know, the example I like to give is, let's say you're a researcher, you know, three years ago who was working on, you know, the latest COVID vaccine, and you think you have, you know, lab results that are worthy of publication, you'll need to go through a whole process in order to actually publish your paper with a reputable journal, or if you have a book to publish it with a reputable uh, academic publisher. And Academics are very, very busy people. Um, they've got teaching responsibilities. They're supposed to be advising their graduate students. They need to be, they have administrative responsibilities, grading tests, and they don't always have time uh, or the resource, you know, proper, you know, uh, um, like students to help them through that research process. So that's kind of where we come in is we help those researchers take their um, research and turn it into a published work. And that, that, that is quite a niche. I can totally feel it myself. I'm also a researcher and I was just doing sum up of my last year, 2022. I haven't published a thing. Oh no. So my biggest <laughs> uh, actually plan for the next year is to get published. And I have exactly an idea. I have, a, I have a journal where I want to publish. I have a friend. But yes, I totally agree. It's a totally uh, last thing in my business priorities because this is mainly for business reasons. I do a research to actually sit for at least 20 hours and write. So that also I think we are very used to as entrepreneurs to delegate. So tell me to what extent can we delegate the thing to academic language experts? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, there's there's a few questions here. First of all, I, I, I very much hope, Chris, that you can um, overcome your publication, you know, uh, challenges and, and publish in, in 2023. Um, you now know at least who can who can help you along that process. But I think that you're very typical, meaning I don't think that you're different from most 
researchers in the sense that, you know, you obviously have a business and, and that's your core focus, but it's very hard. Um, between 80 and 90% of articles are rejected uh, for publications. You have to try over and over again. And each time you need to change it and improve it and update it to the latest research. So it's not an easy thing to do. Um, I don't think that the way I would describe what we are doing is outsourcing as much as it is having, the way I like to describe it is having your silent partner. So if there are scholars who will come to us and just think, oh, here, you know, take all my ideas and just turn them into something, you know, that can be published in nature or in science, right? One of the top journals in the world. That's not exactly how it works. And we, we're very careful not to be confused with companies that, let's say, will write papers on your behalf, because that's really not what we're coming to do. Now, what we're coming to do is work with the researcher so that when they have a draft, we'll come and revise, update, critique, review that draft, give them suggestions and inputs for how to improve it, how to tweak it, how to get it closer to publication so that they have less, um, so that their rejection rate goes down and they have a greater chance of being accepted. But it's really important for the researcher to play an active role in the process because they're the ones with the novel ideas. They're the ones who have done the research. They're the ones who understand the difference between what's critical and maybe what's secondary. They know where they can publish and we're there to kind of help them turbocharge their process, speed it up, make sure that it happens in the most efficient way possible so that instead of it taking two years to publish your article, it'll take three or four months. And that's kind of really where we're coming into play. Yes, and it, it's worth adding that maybe some of our listeners don't realize how long is this process. And when you say years, it is actually not so far from truth. The peer review, which makes the science so credible, which is really nice, actually that's the biggest obstacle because, <laughs> as you said, you can be rejected time after time, which makes the process extremely long. Then there is a publishing process, which also takes some additional months. <laughs> I personally, I'm not very used to it, doing most of my time, the business, that the things take years, not days. <laughs> okay, but speaking about years and days, I'm really curious about your journey. This is not the first business idea that a person would start. So tell me about your journey, how it all started and how come that you came to this idea? Yeah, great question, Chris. Thanks so much. Um, so it's it was very much by mistake. Um, I would say that entrepreneurship was by mistake. Um, starting this business was by mistake. and uh, But it's all meant to be in, in the long run. Um, so back in about 2014, I was in university studying for my BA uh, here in Israel. And I actually, you know, I was um, out of laziness, uh, asked my my professor if I could uh, write my papers in English. He agreed. He was impressed with the level of my English and said, you know what, I've got this paper that I'm working on. I want to publish it in Cambridge. Can you help me translate it? So I said, okay, how hard could that be? Not knowing how much um, skill and knowledge and homework goes into, you know, a, a typical article and took it on and started kind of doing that on the side as I was finishing up my studies. Um, and my entire, by the way, my entire goal, I was studying education. I wanted to be a teacher. I ended up getting a job as a fourth grade teacher um, in a school in Jerusalem. And I thought that was my path. And what happened was, is that I was doing the teaching in the mornings and the uh, kind of starting this side hustle in the afternoons. And I hated the mornings. I hated the teaching and I loved the side hustle. And after about a month, I came home and turned to my wife and said, I think I'm going to switch this. Like, I think, you know, I, I just studied six years to become a teacher, but I think I'm going to chuck that and 
and and and and try this, you know, see if I can help more and more scholars. And what what I had realized over the, those few weeks or those months is that there were a lot of kind of researchers that were in a similar boat. Um, a lot of them are were what we call Eng EAL scholars, so English is an additional language, or you may know ESL, right? Scholars for whom publishing not only was difficult because publishing is difficult and takes a long time, but because their native language isn't English and they struggled with conveying their ideas in a clear and coherent manner. And the more that I spoke to my own professors and then kind of, you know, using those as a springboard for branching out, the more I realized that this was a really tremendous need and that it was, you know, widespread and they didn't feel like they had a solution that really kind of addressed their real needs. And I said, okay, well, let's take it a day, day by day, see if we can grow this thing and see where it ends up. This was before I knew about EO, before I probably even know what the word entrepreneurship meant. Um, I knew that I needed to, you know, have a job that supported my family. I knew that I needed to, um, that I wanted to have my own independence and my own kind of decision-making. And, you know, this kind of all fit those criteria. So I just took it and ran. That's amazing what you're saying, because very often entrepreneurs, whenever founders, whenever they say, okay, it was pure coincidence or it was never planned, it is actually the story that begins with there was a need in the market and you totally detected it, of course, with one example, but you expanded it up to multi-million business. And I think there is still a big, big space uh, to grow just because you actually searched some real need. It was not you know, designed on the desk. It was not designed in a conference room. It was designed by one person needing your service. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think, <laughs> meaning I think it was a bit of, I, I'm not sure that I was like thinking about it. In, in looking back, I can say, yeah, it was a really smart decision. I knew exactly what I was doing. I picked a niche, I went at it. Um, that isn't true, meaning, meaning it's true in the sense that I did do that, but not consciously. I'm a sort of, uh, um, you know, re maybe there was something, you know, intuitive about it that I realized there was a need, but I think you're right, Chris, that you need to start off with what is missing and what can really be done. And, and what's interesting about this field is, you know, I, similar to education and teaching, a lot of people say, well, there's no money in academia. Well, that's not entirely true. Um, what I mean by that is, is that, yes, if you're going to become, you know, your typical adjunct professor, which many are nowadays, you're not going to get a very high salary, but that doesn't mean that higher education doesn't yield um, serious business. Um, you know, you can just think about all the R&D that happens on the university level. Um, the academic publishing space, which is kind of where we're, the industry that we're in, so that means, you know, who the, the publishers, you know, whether it's Yale University Press or Princeton University Press or Wiley or Taylor and Francis, these are some of the big names that you may or may not have heard of. Uh, these are serious entities with serious businesses um, that really, you know, have some serious um, uh, infrastructure in place to support them. Um, and in fact, the academic publishing industry is 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 doing quite well and is growing at quite a rapid pace. So I know all those things now, 10 years, you know, from learning the industry. I don't know if I knew that them then. But yeah, starting with a kernel of some uh, of a burning need and something being a real problem is probably something that, you know, most EO folks that are listening to this, that's kind of how they started their businesses as well. Yeah. Speaking about uh, the, 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 how much money is in academia, I just realized I started counting how much I, I make money out of being kind of vice dean and how much money did I take from grants 
So at the next for the next year, I have a grant for about two point five million dollars, which is like three hundred more than I earn as a vice dean, and that's where the money flows, uh, actually for for research. And and that's the third time in a row I get a big grant. Of course, this is going to thirty people, not only me, uh, unluckily. <laughs> and, and but still, that's where the money is, not in teaching, not in but publishing and research and that's that's amazing just for people who are listening uh, to us outside of academia okay and i was thinking that after so many years ha have you developed any kind of mission statement or anything big that you realize that your company is about yeah that's a really great question i'm, I'm a big fan of deep needs and trying to figure out what those are um We've actually done a lot of work over the last year in really trying to tease out our mission and our values. Um, and I think it, what, one thing I've learned is that it really is dynamic, meaning you don't want to change, be changing your mission every day, but um, you know, it's kind of a grown and evolved as the business has grown and evolved. So whereas we were originally focused on language, we've sort of become more uh, about publication support and, and even more than that, supporting researchers in is what is a very lonely um, and isolating world what happens is is that you know basically the rules of the game dictate that your job is to always critique your peers right your job is always to tell them what they're doing wrong that's what peer review is and on the one hand it's a very good thing right none of us would want to have taken a covid vaccine that wasn't totally tested and checked and critiqued and and vetted on the other hand think about what it does if that's kind of your job day in day out is to get rejections critiques you know feedbacks that aren't necessarily constructive so I think what we've realized is that our mission is to help the researchers that we work with and um, to become the best version of themselves and through their research or through their writing, right? Because their writing is the way that they express what their legacy, what's important to them to the rest of the world. It's the way they make an impact, right? The only way that I that my research means anything is if I share it with others and they can then use it and they can expand on it and build on it. So helping giving scholars the confidence and the and the wording to be able to convey the really world-changing ideas that they want to that's really our mission and that has such far-ranging implications because you know i'll give you one example that i came across recently that was just blew my mind there was a uh, a chinese scholar um and, and i don't remember exactly what illness she was um researching i can i can look it up but she was researching an illness that had not been, there was no cure that was, that, that had been found for it. And she came up with really like novel science in order to find a cure for that, uh, for that illness. And she published it in Chinese and no one, it didn't make any difference. Doctors didn't learn about it. They didn't know about it. Um, it didn't get quoted. And all, it took one person who was doing what's called a review paper, which is kind of like a, you know, uh, one English um, scholar who was doing a review paper um, to say, oh, have you noticed this? You know, this scholar in China, she's come up with really interesting, you know, ideas for how to cure this disease. And all of a sudden from there, the review paper was quoted over 700 times and has now become sort of practice. So that to me just drives home the idea that like, you know, we have all these brilliant, intelligent people, but if they can't communicate um, their research in an effective way, then it's almost, you know, like it's sort of like locked up in a garage and it's and it's it's a real shame. The other thing I would say is that I think one thing, another thing academia has learned, and I'm interested to hear what you think, Chris, about this, is that, you know, over the pandemic, I was surprised by 
how much pushback there was to science, how much people were critical and skeptical and didn't want to trust what was coming out. Um, and without getting into the politics of it, 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 for me, it raised the question of, do people really respect science? Are we as scientists or researchers doing a good job communicating what it is that we're doing um, with the general public, not just with our own peers? And, you know, academia is famous for being in its ivory tower and not, you know, expressing itself. And I think there's some element of truth to that. And I think we need to think about not only how do we publish internally to speak amongst ourselves in higher education, but also how do we convey those research results to the public in a way that they can easily understand and consume? I think the, 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 these two topics we discussed today, so academia being slow and doing all this peer review and people expecting, especially during COVID times, quick answers, we need to solve it very quick. People don't know. And I actually looked up just before we were discussing that there is all every year credibility ratings of different professions. Usually a policeman not goes as high as a fireman. Fireman usually goes first. Uh, then for many, many years until COVID, university professor was number one, at least in Europe. But uh, during COVID, it went to like fourth position after medical doctor or something like this. So it made me quite sad, actually. But probably there is some scorn of truth like imagine this uh, vaccination was developed so fast unbelievably fast just a couple of months then it took to to research it and it gave a lot of space you know the regulations and it gave a lot of space for people to criticize it plus of course there was big business over it that made people you know just very skeptical because there were big problems that will end the problem of COVID. And I think this is this is quite a complex topic. I don't want to dig into it so much. But you're right that the COVID really struck the publication business and and probably changed it maybe for forever. Yeah, that that we realized kind of that we need to act faster, that probably we need to work together, not separately, because uh, you know, if, if if we work in our ivory towers and we don't share, the problem is that very rare scientists are really willing to share the knowledge and have time to share the knowledge and put their ideas in such a simple way. Um, it, it brings to my mind the the, the name of Yoval Harari, this uh, Israeli res history researcher that whenever you hear him, his ideas seem so obvious and his books seem readable to everyone. And actually he started, he says in one of the interviews that he never expected that he would become so famous one day. He, he thought that, you know, just some Israeli people would he read his papers and that's it. But once he got published in English, he got huge, huge... Um, uh, amount of readers. Yeah, so I wanna I wanna say two things about that. First of all, is um, in terms of the speed of research being put out, it's critically important that we speed up the process. Um, but but it needs it can't come at the expense of the validity of the research because it what happened during COVID is sometimes there was research that was kind of initial ideas, initial thoughts. The 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 publisher published it as like you know initial research. It was wrong and led to problematic um, you know, treatment plans for patients around the world. So there's this balance. And there were a lot of papers that were recalled later for being incorrect uh, for studies that were done too quickly. 
And th those cost lives. I mean, there, is a, there was a price to pay for that. So there's a really tough balance here between doing the proper peer review. We don't want to skip, we don't want to cut corners on any of the process on the one hand, but we do want to get things out as quickly and as efficiently as possible on the other hand. In terms of being able to kind of share, um, you know, research and in, in a way that everyone understands. So it's not easy. You know, I, I'd even ask everyone who's listening to this, think about their own industry and their own field. And how many times have you tried to explain what you what you do, um, you know, what your business is at the, around the Thanksgiving dinner table or, you know, uh, around the, you know, to your, your family and friends and they go, huh? Like, I don't know what he does or I don't know what she does. Right. Meaning. So it's, it's a, cha I think it's a challenge for all of us. And I think the scientists, because they are, because they are, you know, a very intelligent group of, of people and they're working on things which are complex and sometimes theoretical and sometimes only will have impact in the future. It's really important for us to think about not only what novel ideas we're bringing, but how do we translate those into something that even a fourth or fifth grade, you know, that, that our kids can understand. And I think there are, you know, there are a lot, there is a lot of work being done in this um, and, and to, to make things more understandable. There's a, there's a trend called video abstracts where people will take their research that they've done and they've published in a paper and then they'll do a three, four minute clip just kind of explaining with infographics or maybe some footage about what it is. I think that's a really valuable and important trend. Um, but it's important also, you know, to kind of make sure that doesn't replace the full science because what happens is when you only see the results, you don't see the methods. So sometimes you can come to wrong conclusions and uh, your, yourself. So there's a lot of work to be done here to do a lot of important work to be done here. I'm just, I don't want it to be entirely speed. I think that could be a mistake. Exactly. We have to avoid oversimplification because it, it, it may result in, you know, us watching old YouTube videos on science, which is not that easy. And I have this problem. I, you're totally right. I have I have two main businesses. One is fairly simple. Simple. It is custom software developers. So mainly we have 100 developers. We hire them and we let them work to our our partners, our clients. That's pretty obvious. But we have also a headless Mach based LMS which is even as I'm saying it, sounds quite difficult. And I, I tried to explain it in so many ways, like, okay, headless means you build an, a learning management system, an e-learning system from Lego, but still I see on people's faces that it is not that easy for them to understand. But on the other hand, we need to distinguish ourselves, like, okay, but but we do the Lego thing. We do the headless. That's why we are special. And I cannot make it easier. <laughs> so there, there are limitations to it. I mean, I cannot, I can explain it to to my grandmother, okay, but then it doesn't make any use for her. If I had a, a portal like Uber or Booking, that would probably be easier because it's customer, it's directed to customer. Uh, but you know, some B2B businesses have to be complex. You cannot explain how. SAP works or Salesforce in an <laughs> easy way, like entirely. Okay, but speaking about business models, what is the business model of your company? How, how does it make money? Yeah, good question. Um, so we're, we're a services company and we've got two main, um, uh, two main tracks. Um, the first one is direct what would 
traditionally be known as B2C. In our case, it's you know us to the researchers directly, whereby they have a paper, they have a book, they have a grant proposal they want help with. They come to us, they upload it via the website, um, they get a quote, they and 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 go through the process with us until the project is finished. That's sort of the first model. And that was kind of the way we grew the business and scaled it organically from the time it started until a couple of years ago. Um, what we've added on, we still do that work. That's still the core of our business. What we've added um, in the last few years is um, what we like to call uh, the cat food model, which is that we are, it's B2B to B to C, which means that we are partnering with strategic partners in the higher education space, in the pub, in the academic publishing space, in order to, um, to enable, uh, basically, that they will help us to reach their audiences in a much, you know, at scale in a much greater way. So I'll give you a few examples. Um, we have a partnership with Princeton University Press where they will send us mm. authors who need help with their manuscripts prior to being published to the press. They need us to kind of help the book get to the place where it needs to get to or help the authors get the book where, where it needs to get to in order to publish. That's sort of on the publishing side. On the university side, so we partner with um, universities around across the world, uh, mainly in Europe, whereby we will help their research authorities. That's the body that's in charge of making sure that the research that's coming out of the university or institution is um, of high quality. And we'll help them help their researchers um, with their grant proposals or with their uh, publications. And so that's bringing more money into the university itself and it's helping the researchers. So in the end of the day, the work is always with researchers on research. The difference is, is that more recently, we have been focusing more of our attention on how do we make those industry connections um, within the, the higher education space to, uh, to be able to deliver greater impact and to be able to help more and more scholars around the world with the research, because we really are convinced that what we're doing is unique. It's different. It's it's um, it. We're, we we do real deep dives into the content. We really help people get closer to that, getting that grant or getting that publication, as opposed to just you know a, a quick grammar check or you know sort of a superficial look that most um, you know individuals might be able to do. We can really dive deep into the science itself and help the scientists better clarify, better explain, um, better convey their research in a manner that's convincing. And that can be the difference between getting the $2.5 million grant, as you talked about, or getting rejected. That can be the difference in getting your article accepted. And what I want to, and, and what's really interesting about this field is that, you know, just getting a few articles into the top tier journals really can make your career. And I'm not exaggerating, and I'm, I'm sure you know about this, um, that, you know, it's not just about can I publish? It's not like, you know, some fora Facebook where I just throw up whatever I want. There's a very um, high level vetting that goes on. And if I can get my papers into the top tier, so I've actually, you know, I've, I've, that, that can be a game changer in terms of my career. So I always say that people come to us because, you know, not necessarily because they're making, you know, the highest salary, they're making, you know, um, uh, you know, very high salaries. They come to us because their careers depend on um, really getting these publications out. For better or for worse, um, teaching is not really all that important when it comes to promotion. Um, uh, even advising is not that important. The publications are really critical. So that's why um, scholars put put a tremendous amount of focus on them. And by the way, one more thing I'll add, in terms of the institutions and the universities, um, 
the the university rankings are critical and those are impacted by how much how much research is published from that university so every year you probably have seen you know there's a list of you know the top 100 universities in the world top 1000 universities in the world you look for your own university you're curious if it went up if it went down so what is that based on so it's based on a lot of that that score is based on a lot of different factors and there are a few different scores out there but bottom line is research production and uh, proliferation is a big part of that um, number, and that can actually impact. That can directly impact funding that 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 universities are receiving from governments. So there's a lot riding on whether the ranking goes up or goes down, and they turn to us to help them to you know kind of boost their ranking, not only with individual researchers but as an institution. But uh, I want to talk to you with another uh, important topic to our listeners. Most of my living in America, some of them were educated in Morocco or in Pakistan. So it's very interesting for me uh, to discuss different uh, educational systems. And you're based in Israel. That That is the educational system that raises lots and lots of controversy. First of all, because of the historical reasons that probably this is the most educated society worldwide. Uh, I've been in Israel a couple of times and you always see these people reading Bible all over the streets and, and and other books there are so many Nobel prize winners uh, and you know the, the ones that we know in Poland uh, they, these are actually mostly uh, the the Jewish people who are living at, on the territory of Poland uh, but they're actually of Jewish origin so that's one thing that makes me very curious and second thing is that after high school you go to the army so that's kind of created this Bond. Could you elaborate how it works? Uh, how do you personally find it? Wow, that's an interesting question. I don't think I've ever been asked that before. Um, okay, so I will start by saying that you know um, I, I am Jewish, um, grew up in in the states. Um, you know, obviously reading and we're, we're you know there's a phrase the people of the books. So obviously, reading and um, always continually educating yourself is a I think a, a value that's that's promoted. Um, among the Jewish people in general, um, with uh, you know, with with Israel in particular, obviously close connection to the Bible and to religious study. Um, so I think that definitely contributes. I, I can't necessarily, you know, I, I I don't know if I have any statistics. I don't know that it's possible. I think that you know you have to you have to also have to be careful when it comes to you know certain like stereotypes and make sure that you're not throwing everyone and and you know there's a lot of a lot of different personalities here and it's not monolithic. Um, in terms of the army, so you know the army is very much uh, creates. Uh, you know, if we're thinking about the business perspective, what happens is is that people are in a very intense um, situation for a long period of time and really get to know the folks around them in a very intimate, deep way. And I think especially um, what's happened over the last few years in Israel is that some of the intelligence units have produced some of the best high tech companies post um, army, because what happens is they're working together, using some of these technologies, learning from a very young age, kind of being thrown in the deep end um, and working together in a very intense way. And then afterwards, once you get out of the army, you say, okay, that was, you know, it can't get harder than that. So let's go and, and experiment. Let's go try something. And there's definitely a startup innovative culture here, um, which I think is, is already well known around the world. Um, you know, there's a well-known book, Startup Nation, which I encourage people to read, which I think is, is you know, we have what to learn from. So, uh, you know, I don't know how it compares. I know that Israel spends more on, you know, R&D, on, on research um, per capita than than other than many other countries. Um, you know, and I think that's really important. And we've seen a lot of foreign investment in previous years. And in many ways, 
it's 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 protected the the local economy, meaning some of the recessions that some of the other um, countries have gone through, major European countries have gone through. Israel has managed to avoid, and the shekel has gotten stronger over the last ten years um, continually. I think as a result, uh, on the back of investment in uh, defense, which is a blessing and a curse um, at the same time, as well as uh, investment in high tech. So um, I definitely benefit from being in that ecosystem. You know, there's definitely a feeling you're not you're not an outlier if you're if you are an entrepreneur or if you do want to start a business. There's lots of people around with great ideas, um, but I don't think that makes us immune to you know bigger uh, you know global trends. And I don't think there's any superpower here. It's just a matter of um, embracing kind of an entrepreneurial spirit and and um, being in an environment where that works well. I mean, could you compare knowing? A little bit of American system and and uh, Israeli system. Could you a little bit compare what are the differences and what are the similarities? Okay, that's a big question. I don't know. You know, it's funny. I was I was in. So I'll tell you. I was I grew up in in Baltimore. I grew up in the U.S. Um, and I left at age eighteen. Um, and now uh, I I um, you know, and I've been here, and I'm about um, I'm 35, so I've spent about half of my life uh, in the states and about half of my life here in Israel. Um, so it, you know, I had very different experiences. You know, my 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 childhood experience was in the states. I don't know that I was reflecting on it per se, but thinking back, in terms of like the K to 12, um, there's a much higher degree of independence, I think, here than in than in the U.S. Um, I think that the U.S. Um, generally has a more of a protective culture where we're trying to kind of shield our students from things that may, um, they may, you know, make them feel uncomfortable, um, which can be explained historically and sociologically, um, and has been done so through some really interesting works. But here it's sort of because there is this understanding and knowledge that we can be, you know, in a warlike situation at really at any moment, Um, there's a little bit more risk taking. I think there's a little bit less worry about you know exposure to things that are uncomfortable because I think that everyone knows someone um, you know who's been injured or who's been harmed in in you know or or knows someone who knows someone. So it's kind of almost a, a mute exercise to try and shield children from that. You know, I. I I still find it strange that my kids come home and talk about, oh, this person died or that person died and they're still in kindergarten. Um, and I think that's, I don't think that's a positive thing per se, but I think it it, it, it develops a certain, you know, kind of uh, resilience, maybe I would say, um, that is, that can be beneficial at later, later points in life. Um, I even find, you know, this is a silly anecdote, but I even find that, you know, I have a group of, 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 um, friends that I ride with on, on Fridays, ride my ride bike. We do mountain biking and, um, and they're, and they're, the Israelis are a lot bigger risk takers than, I, than, than like the Anglos are like the Anglos are like, you know, lagging behind because we're kind of like, well, we don't want to fall on the way down. And the Israelis like kind of have no, you know, no fear, uh, uh, sort of a spirit, which I think serves them in many ways, but also, you know, has its drawbacks as well. Um, you know, so, so, Yeah, I don't know that I'm an expert necessarily in the higher education space. Um, you know, in terms of the U.S., um, I think that definitely our main business is Europe-based because of the focus on English as an additional language. But there's no doubt. I mean, you know, America is a country of immigrants. There's a lot of work that needs to be done there, and I always make it a point to say that our work is not explicitly for, um, you know, 
ESL scholars for for scholars who from English. English is just one component of research, right? The ideas need to be there, the, the solid research foundation, um, how you communicate your research. These are all things which go well beyond language. So um, we do a lot of work in the U.S. as well, um, but it's not necessarily something that everybody needs. It's only that um, you know fewer folks need it. Is there anything Avi that would like to change in the Israeli education system? I mean except of ending all the possible wars yeah um i mean yes very much so uh the israeli educational system is broken i'm sure that most people say that about their local education systems um it is almost entirely public um which you know i is basically for historical reasons because israel was a socialist country um that's the way it was originally set up that's the way that it kind of exists until now the strongest union in the country is currently is the education union. Um, so last year, even post COVID, there were lengthy strikes where my kids were at home and we weren't able to work. Now, I'm not saying their their grievances grievances aren't legitimate. A lot of them are, but it creates sort of a, a really a, a power dynamic, which I think is problematic. Um, so developing some sort of fair um, and equitable private system, I think is, is really an important priority that needs to be um, thought of. Um, we've only got seven universities here, so for all the you know great research that's coming out, I think that developing research not only among the Jewish population but also among the Arab population um, is a really important uh, priority that needs to be you know needs to be addressed in the upcoming years. Um, and I think that also with the Abraham Accords, which are the peace agreements between Israel and many of its um, uh, Arab neighbors, um, uh, you know, in, is a real opportunity to create a real powerhouse of higher education here in the region. And I'm already seeing a lot of initiatives in that direction. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I try as a, as an optimist to not just look at the problems, but also look at the opportunities. Um, and I think there's a lot to be done here, but, and there's, but there's also a lot of untapped potential. So could you tell me also for coming back to your business experience, I would like to ask you about your inspiring book that you to us that really stood out from the other books you read uh, that could inspire other founders? Yeah, you know, I don't know if this is because it's the first book I've read. Um, my uncle uh, served in the beginning of my business as a mentor to me. Um, he owned a business in a total in the waste disposal industry in a totally different field. But his suggestion to me was to read the book Built to Sell by John Warlow. I don't know if that, um, that means anything to you. But basically, it's, uh, you know, there is a business that is how to run your business, right? And then there's what is your business? What's the value? What's the worth to someone else? If you were to one day want to exit your business, or even if you don't want to exit your business, but you have to, or just setting it up in the long term so it can run without you. And these are all topics that are covered in Built to Sell. And it's basically thinking about how do you create a business which can scale, which can become bigger than you, which really focuses on a niche and becomes really great at that niche instead of trying to do everything for everyone. Um, and that was the first book I read, but I return to it every couple of years because I really find that it's super, um, you know, super helpful and super, um, you know, kind of like focuses you on what really you need to be working on in the business. So you don't end up with a business that, you know, kind of runs your life, but rather you run the business. Um, and, and it's, it's, and, and I always set up my, you know, I always structured my business in a way where, I wanted it to serve my life goals, but and not that my life goals would serve my business. So I love my business. It's part of my identity. I'm passionate about it, but I also don't want to be bound by it. So this book was a really great way of doing that. I also, you know, 
you already threw up John's name up there. So I'll say that he also has a podcast um, and he also has a follow, follow up book called The Art of Selling Your Business, um, which I also find to be really helpful. And it's not even that I'm selling my business. I just find that it's it, it kind of like when you have the end game, the end goal in mind, then you kind of know how to build the building blocks to get to that point. Yes, that's an art around it. I, I've sold already two businesses and okay. I, I say that I'm two and a half sold because I sold like 40% uh, of my current business. And this is this is quite a quite a challenge to scale up very fast, but at the same time to reduce yourself from operations. And I think this is the only way that you can actually make a successful business because you need to, to think about what's ahead, what's the next step, and also to communicate well. And that's what John really nicely wrote, uh, wrote about that you need to come visiting my company in 2025 which is you know still three more years to run but it also triggers my mind to prepare the company Escola, that i'm not with you forever kind of you know like <laughs> to, to, to communicate that i'm here for a certain period like for a term and then everyone needs to be ready to run by itself and, and and it's a long process that needs certain steps to do and it's a great book i loved it yeah i i find that my trick was hiring people that were better at their jobs than i would than i was at them or that i would be at them so the so for example the editor when i was starting out i was translating and editing myself i found people were better than me so i didn't i, I had what to tell them i had what to teach them i, I you know we've come up with mo course modules to help them but in the end of the day, they're the ones who are drivers because they're really the experts. And I'm here sort of to guide to guide them within the greater vision of the business and to help them kind of when they have dilemmas to think them through. But I'm not here to tell them what, I, you know, I, we really have kind of implemented a culture within our business where there's sort of a hierarchy of, uh, first of all, we developed an SOP, so a standard operating procedure so people can know what to do. And instead of people feeling like, oh, well, this is become very bureaucratic. They actually find it very empowering because they don't need to ask their, you know, their, their colleagues every single time they have a question. That's step one. Look at the SOP. Step two is, is get advice from your colleagues. Before you start asking that you're a superior, ask your, your peers. Oftentimes, they've had a similar situation. They've had a similar issue. They might be able to share their knowledge. That might be enough. If it's enough, great. Add it to the SOP. We're kind of you know, improving the process. Once you've got, if you can't, if you, it's not in the SOP, your colleagues can't help you. Okay. Come, um, you know, come to the management team, come to the leadership team, ask them the question, see what happens or, you know, come to your superior. Um, and then, you know, the superior is supposed to take that time to reflect on, okay, well, why was it that they couldn't handle this dilemma or they didn't know what to do? Um, was it because we weren't clear enough? Was it because um, there was, you know, something else that needs to be added to our training, to our, to, you know, it was the culture, was the core values not clear enough? And kind of like parse that. So we're always thinking not just about how we, you know, kind of put out a fire, but how do we build out long term? Um, that's that's kind of become a really important part of our culture. And I found that it enables us to free up our time and, and mind space to really focus on what's really important in the business um, instead of focusing on like all these little things that come up um, during the course of a day. Easier said than done. It doesn't happen overnight. Our SOP kind of grew too big. It's like over 100 pages now. And now we need, kind of need to shrink it to make sure that it's more usable. Um, but I do think that those steps um, that we've taken have made it a business where 
I can really focus on the strategic development and growth. And even the individual employees can kind of grow within their own roles because they're not constantly kind of need, feeling that they should check with me. Um, in fact, we, we uh, I don't remember where I came up this with, but um, we have a rule that projects that are under, like decisions that have a financial impact of under $100, you are not allowed to ask. Um, you need to take the responsibility and and make a decision and whatever happens, happens. And if it's the wrong decision, fine. You learn from it, you grow from it, you move on to the next project. Um, you know, and 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 I think that that sort of like allowing people to fail and enabling people to fail, um, and but giving them that sort of empowerment that this is your domain. You take it from start to finish. You're the one who's coming in reporting problems. You're the one who's coming in, you know, kind of with the ideas from the field. Um, really helps us enable to make sure that we stay in touch with what's really important. That, that's really interesting what, what you just said about you know not even not allowing your employees to come and ask as a rule i never thought about this and it still happens that they come to for me like they come to me to make some very unimportant decision not strategic strategic one oh, i will I, that will be my takeaway from from uh, this this discussion with you yeah and my Thank goal you, is not the goal is not i, I want to be clear the goal is not that we're trying to be distant or you know or or, or not friendly it's that you know, it helps them have, create a hierarchy in their mind of what's important and what's not important. To us, it's very clear. We're the, we're the business owner. We know like, this is important, this is not. Um, but I think that sometimes for employees, like in the moment, if there's a client that's upset and on the phone, it's like, well, I need an answer, right? So it like seems really critically important. And maybe it is, uh, but they need to know the differences between the different scenarios to be able then to decide what gets passed on and what doesn't get passed on. Otherwise, like I said, you just end up with this kind of constant, you know, putting out fires um, and 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 not feeling like you can work on growing the business. Now, your responsibility or my responsibility as a business owner is to make sure that what we're selling is all very clearly documented and clearly spelled out, what our processes are very clearly spelled out. Because if I don't have that, then it's then it's really asking them, then what? We're expecting them to remember what they learned in the training or what we said in a staff meeting four weeks ago, well, what if that person wasn't there at that stuff? I mean, then it becomes like a real, a real problem. Um, then it becomes a real pain and, and they're legitimately right to come to you and say, well, what am I supposed to do? So the first thing you need to do is document, document, document. Um, I know that's intimidating because it's like, oh my God, I don't have time now to do all that. Just what I, I, the best advice that I got was every time someone asks you a question that ticks you off a little bit, that you're like, come on, by now you need to know this or Everyone knows, or, or there are other folks who know this, why are you coming to me? Just throw it in the, even don't even answer it yet. Just throw it in the SOP, throw it in there. Eventually you'll come up with subjects that you can kind of like, you know, tease out and say, okay, here's our policy on this. Here's our policy on that. And by the way, there are folks like, this is something I learned about my COO that I brought on. Like I'm the, I like to describe myself as like the visionary and I'm always coming with ideas and different, and it drives me nuts to like actually have to document and think about every single little nitty gritty detail in each process. But she loves clarity. So she loves kind of say, taking the ideas that I have and being like, okay, Avi, now what do we actually do, right? Like, like here's a scenario, what do we do? And document those and, and writing those out. So find the personality type within your business who loves clarity and and have them kind of take charge of this mission. Um, I think that could be really really beneficial. And if you're kind of the wild cannon that's always um, you know 
always aiming in different directions. First of all, try and hold yourself back because, you know, you don't want to like overwhelm your staff, but, but, um, but don't change who you are. Just make sure you have the right person in place who knows how to translate your big ideas into policy. Great, great uh, learning, Avi. Um, I have also the same question about a person that inspired you in, in the EO setup. It is such an important thing to have your, your colleagues, your forum to support your growth and for you to give back to them what you learn. Is there any person that inspires you or inspired you to do some crucial, critical decision? Yeah. It's a really good question. Um, uh, so I'll share I'll share something from my forum. Uh, first of all, I'm, I'm fairly new to EO, so I, I I I only joined back in June, so it's still I'm still learning, and but I'm I'm really enjoying forum and all the events. And tomorrow night I'm off to an event um, about AI, which I'm really excited about. Um, I would say that there was a really important time. Um, one of the things that I did not expect to learn from EO that really helped me was thinking about some of the questions that I asked, thinking about them in a, like from a different perspective. Um, and when I see like a, when I see like a, a, a challenge and I'm like, either I can do this or that. And one of my forum partners can come in and say, well, actually there's a, th maybe have you considered a third option, right? Um, this is what we did when we were doing, when we were facing this dilemma, that was really powerful. So um, for example, we had an issue with, you know, we had a, a some turnover problems, some attrition issues with our with our staff, and I brought it to my forum, um, and they, you know, and and I was thinking, well, okay, maybe it's a salary thing, and maybe it's we're dumping too much work on them, and maybe they're not they don't like the work that they're doing, and by the time the conversation was finished, I I kind of had realized or or opened my mind to well maybe it's a culture issue, right? Maybe there's something in the business that we need to because we're a entirely um, dispersed and you know everyone's kind of around the world and remote um, and we've been doing Zoom well before Zoom was a household name, um, maybe that we needed to work double as hard to create a culture which where people felt allegiance and people felt connected to each other. And that was the direction I ended up taking. Whereas before I had that forum, I was thinking in totally different directions about pay packages and about uh, workloads and 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 it, it, you know the solution seemed to come from a totally different direction. So shout out to uh, to actually uh, forum forum Abraham um, in Israel uh, for being really kind of supportive, and they're all they're all my inspiration in that sense. Hmm. This is so amazing, Neo, that we do not give each other advice, and decisions, and totally drive the perspective to some other concerns that we don't see ourselves. That is so amazing. Love it. Um, I wanted Avi to to conclude with the final question about the future of your company because you are quite young and uh, founder, so probably you have still some ambitious plans. And we just been discussing that it's great to be kind of more strategic CEO. So, what is your plan for for your company for the next like three or seven years? Uh, how do you want to grow it? Yeah, really great question. So I, you had asked me before about like what the deep needs of researchers are. So what I see is, you know, we we have been very much a text-based business. So we help people with their text and with their research and in that way help them um, grow as researchers and as people. Um, but I want to further develop the people side. I want to further develop how can we help researchers kind of overcome their personal challenges uh, and overcome their fears and confidence issues in order to 
to really kind of make maximize their potential as researchers. And I think there's a lot of scholars who I've spoken to who just have research on their laptops. They're too, they sent it out once, they're too nervous to go back to it. And kind of really digging deep into their in into how we can really help people, because these are the people that are influencing policy, they're influencing our health. They're, you know, there's so much riding on research and research being done well that how do we help them become the best um, versions of themselves is a really is is the question that keeps me up at night. And how do we not, and that's on the individual level. And then on the institutional level, how do we help institutions make book big moves as institution and progress with research, right? So if we, we're seeing more and more publications coming now from China and from the uh, Middle East and um, Arab countries in the Middle East, so how do we help them as institutions and as governments promote and push their research forward and really make it accessible? Those are the big questions, right? How do we, how, how, not only, meaning A, how do we help them make the most of their own potential as researchers? And then B, how do we make sure that research gets communicated to the greater community and to, and to, to me and you, to folks who aren't researchers, but want to understand when, you know, because 10 years ago, if we would... 20 years ago, if you'd go into the doctor and, you know, and the doctor would give you a diagnosis, you'd be like, okay, maybe I'll go for a second opinion. Maybe I'll ask a friend of mine. That's about it. Nowadays, we're straight onto Google. We want to get all the information at our fingertips. So we need to make sure that information is good, is clear, is understandable. So those are kind of the directions for the business and how, how it's, how it's going to grow um, and how I see it growing in the future. Um, and I think it's keeping in mind the, the, the end researcher, because I think that's kind of the core, that's the core of what we're doing but also thinking about how do we help institutions to support their researchers as well. Mm. You, you showed me just how global this business can be. And as a huge, speaking about Middle East and all these countries that have such a big research potential, but just the, the factor of language is important. Like Sweden is great with research, all the, the Scandinavian countries. Why? Because they speak English tremendously. They are small countries so they need to publish in english to get um kind of big reach and and that's a huge potential i see in in your company and i i learned a lot from this discussion i hope our listeners also draw this knowledge from you and from your inspiration thank you very much avi for discussing with me today Thanks, Chris. I really appreciate your time. Um, anyone, if there's anyone listening who wants, you're welcome to reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active there. Uh, try to do some thought leadership. Um, anyone who's in the higher education space, always happy and willing to connect with um, you know folks and think think out of the box about how to how to how to disrupt and how to make things engaging and exciting. So um, I appreciate the opportunity. This is really it's quite an honor to kind of be interviewed on an EO podcast because I have so much. Um, appreciation for EO and still feel like I'm at the beginning of my of my EO journey, um, but already appreciate and realize the value that it brings. Um, and I'm looking forward to getting more involved in all the, you know, specifically in, in the my EO education um, forum and, and, you know, and, and being able to both learn, mainly learn, but also hopefully contribute a little bit as well.